I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus for all of us who are imperfect and in need of repair. And I think that's probably all of us. So today we are season one, episode 34, and we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26, if you want to turn there. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been supportive of this podcast. And if you'd like to become a supporter, you can see how to do that in the program notes that are uh, with this broadcast. So if you've been around me for a while as a preacher or teacher for any length of time, you've probably heard me say that God loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. That's become one of my mantras because I think it helps us understand kind of the basic gospel message. The the main point of the gospel is that a relationship with God begins with God. God moves towards us. God initiates. He not only takes the first step, he takes all the steps necessary to begin to express his love for us and to reach us. He's got personally involved in our world in Jesus Christ incarnate, in God in the flesh. And Jesus came to us and brought salvation to us as a free gift, a free gift that he paid for with his life upon the cross. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to improve on it. We just receive it. It's a free gift. And we saw that back in John 3.16, the famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was God taking action and us responding in faith. God came, God gave, we just receive. And what's great is that it's an open invitation. He says, whoever receives, whoever, they can all receive that gift. It's an open invitation. And that means God's love is open and available to all. But we need to recognize that salvation is just the beginning. Life with God moves on. It moves on to transformation, what the Bible calls sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more what God uh, wants us and who God wants us to be. God wants to shape us and to bring us back to how he originally designed us to be, in harmony with his own very nature. You see, our lives, our personalities, our world, everything around us and about us has been polluted by sin, damaged. Our personalities, our very nature is out of sync with God's nature. This sin nature I usually describe as sin with a capital S. It's who we are. It's the, it's the big issue. It's the big issue that Jesus dealt with when he went to the cross. And it's the sins with a capital S that is a separation from God. But it leads to all those other little things, maybe sins with a small s. Those are the symptoms of the bigger disease. These are the real-life consequences of that larger brokenness. Salvation focuses on sin with a capital S. But spiritual transformation begins to deal with sins with a small s. And those are the things that we see every day, our frustration, anger, impatience, lust, jealousy, manipulation, power, fear, hate, possessiveness, materialism, greed, all those little things that mess us up. Salvation is a free gift that we accept. Transformation, on the other hand, is a process that we participate in. And so spiritual transformation requires our active will, our cooperation, our obedience, our daily decisions, the daily actions that we control. God's goal for us is that we would become more and more like Jesus. So spiritual transformation means we actually begin to take on Jesus's life within us 
and we began to live life Jesus's way. That was always Jesus's intention. Throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus saying to people, follow me, come and follow me. And at the very beginning of his ministry, there was an invitation to come, to come and check me out, to see if he's real or just some crazy religious teacher. Uh, in John 139, we saw how he says to Andrew and another unnamed disciple, come and see. And, and they went with him and they spent the day just watching him. That was the initial way people begin to get close to Jesus. They'd watch. They would just see him interact with the sick or the religious hypocrites or the powerful or the desperate or just ordinary people like them. But then Jesus would call people to a deeper kind of following a faith-filled following that required something of them. It required that they begin to become like Jesus, not on their own power, but in the power that God provides through the Holy Spirit within them. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 12. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry, and we're going to hear what happens after that. This is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the ones who serves me. Jesus knows he is heading towards his own death. His invitation to follow here and in other similar passages, describes a whole different level of following than just that initial invitation to faith and salvation. It means actually following Jesus in the way that he lives, and possibly then in the way that he will die. So here's a question that I'd like us to struggle with a little bit. And don't decide your answer to this question too quickly, especially for those of us who have been in Christian circles for a long time. Been to a lot of Bible studies, heard a lot of sermons. We've got our theology down pretty pat, read a lot of books. But please don't answer this question too quickly. I really would like us to wrestle with it and maybe kick it around over lunch with a friend or really think about it. Really ask, what does this question mean for me? And here's the question. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be a Christ follower? Is it possible to be a Christian and not be a Christ follower. Jesus once said that you will know people by their fruits. If you look at a person's life, that tells you who they really are. Does there have to be a connection between salvation and transformation? I know every believer in Christ struggles at some point with their faith. Frequently, you can feel like you're not making any progress at all, and I feel that way too. A few years ago, I saw an article in a local uh, New Jersey paper that really caught my attention, but I misunderstood it completely. I misunderstood the headline. It was a story of a 76-year-old woman, and the headline read, Local Woman Walks Her Way to Wisconsin. And I mentioned the town of Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I wanted to read that article because that's where my 
grandfather's dairy farm used to be very near that area. I spent a lot of time in that part of Wisconsin as a child. The large majority of my aunts and uncles and cousins all live in that area of Wisconsin. So we had had been there just a few week, uh, years earlier for a family reunion. You know, I gathered with like a hundred of my relatives there. It's the land of bratwurst and cheese and Green Bay Packer fans. So those are my people. So I was really interested in this article, but as I read it, I found that the woman had walked 705 miles over the summer, but all of it right there in New Providence, New Jersey. And the mileage she walked was equivalent of walking to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, God bless her. That's quite an accomplishment. That's a lot of miles for anybody to walk in a month, much less somebody who's 76 years old. But I thought on an allegorical level, she did all that walking and never went anywhere. She never saw anything else but New Province after those 700 and plus miles. It's a lot of energy, but no progress. She kept going over the same territory over and over again. And if we're honest, isn't that often how we feel as Christians about our relationship with Christ? Sometimes we feel like asking, am I really making any progress in my faith or am I just walking in circles? Jesus calls us to follow him. Now, if you had one word to describe Jesus's ministry while he was on earth, what would that word be? Would it be healer? Would it be preacher? Would it be prophet? Those are all great words and in some ways do describe Jesus. But the one word that I would pick that really summarizes his strategy, his lifestyle, his interactions, that one word I'd pick is discipler. Jesus's main goal was to make disciples, real life followers who would do what he did after he went back to heaven. Not fans, not supporters, not friends, but disciples people who would actually follow him and obey his commands. You may be familiar with the passage from Matthew 28, 19, what was often called the Great Commission. Jesus' last command in the gospel to his disciples where he says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Far from being something that he tacked on at the end of his life, this was really a summary statement of everything that he had talked about and demonstrated during his three years of ministry with his disciples. They knew what he meant. He described the whole way Jesus had related to them during their years with him. He made disciples, and they were standing there right before him. So he's saying, now go, and what I did with you you do with others. Make more disciples. That was his only strategy, his only way of bringing change into people's lives and and his way of impacting the world. It was making disciples. So making disciples is not just some fad in the Christian vocabulary. You know, we American Christians, we love our fads. We chase after the popular speakers and the seminars and this book or that book. But the charge to make disciples is a command for all Christians in all places, at all times. It's not just a specialty for some or something that just a a few Christians are supposed to do, sort of the super saints. It's not a specialty within Christian experience. It's really a summary statement of the Christian life for everyone. Let me say that again. Making disciples is not a specialty within the Christian community. It's really a summary statement of our Christian experience. Discipling, making disciples 
This is how Jesus will begin to change your life and help you to begin to change the lives of others. It means living life Jesus's way. In Mark 3.13, when he first officially chose those 12 to be called his disciples, it says Jesus did two things. He called them to be with him, and then he sent them out into the world with his power. Called to be with him, and then go out to the world to reach the world in his name and in his power. That was his will for them, and friends, that's his will for you, and for me as well. In a sense, we come to Jesus to get ourselves together so that we can go to the world and give ourselves away. We come to Jesus to get ourselves together so that we can go to the world and give ourselves away. That's really God's plan for your life. We come to Jesus to get ourselves together so that he can go out to the world and give ourselves away. You see, Jesus had a new way of making disciples. A lot of different groups had their disciples, Greek philosophers, rabbis, they all had their cadre of followers. But those relationships, those disciple-teacher relationships mainly had to do with the transfer of information, the wise teacher giving his or her wisdom to the younger follower. But Jesus does more than just give information, and that's why he's not just a moral teacher or an ethical teacher. He gives his very life into his disciples and asks them to take on his life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is more than a mentor. He literally takes up residence within our hearts through his spirit. And it's this indwelling spirit that then allows us to begin to experience the, the growth of his life in us, allows Jesus's life to flow within us. And that's how Jesus begins to change us from the inside out. He takes residence in our very souls. You come to Jesus to get yourself together so you can go to the world to give yourself away. And as you join in this, you join in the process of discipling others. There's a great definition of discipling or disciple making in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Paul writes to his young protege Timothy, he says, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable ones who will also be qualified to teach others. Do you hear that sequence? Paul disciples Timothy. He trains him, pours his life into him, helps him get closer to the Lord, helps him through you know, the rough edges, but then pushes Timothy to go out of the nest and says, now you go and do the same thing with others, that they can go and do it in another generation. Discipling is this process of reproducing in others what the Spirit of God is doing in you, so in turn they can be enabled to do it in a third and fourth generation. Let me say that again. Discipling is the process of reproducing in others what the Spirit of God is doing in you so that they in turn can be enabled to do it to a third and then a fourth generation. Paul, Timothy, the ones Timothy disciples, and then the ones they disciple. There's four generations of disciple making there. This is a generational thing that's going on here. Discipling means building into the lives of others and of future generations. This hit home to me when I was a senior in high school because the young man who led me to Christ said that the real test of his ministry would not be what happened in my life, would not be really tested by what happens in the lives that I, of those that I lead to Christ, but in the ones that they would lead to Christ, that fourth generation. And that implanted in me the reality that Jesus wants us to be thinking more about the next generation than we normally do. 
because we begin to change as we seek to influence the lives of others. That's just how God works. As long as we're selfishly focused on ourselves alone, usually very little begins to happen in our lives. But when we come to Jesus in order to give ourselves away, that's when God can actually begin to work within us. The measure of real spiritual progress is the health of that fourth generation. Do you know what? That's why Christian discipleship really begins in the family. Parents, one of our primary callings is to disciple our children, to bring them up in the love and the knowledge of the Lord, that we are God's primary means of discipling our children. It's not the youth group or the Sunday school or the summer camp, as wonderful and as important as all those ministries are, especially with kids who maybe don't have Christian parents. They're really there just to assist us as parents as we seek to influence our children. That's why this generational mindset has to be part of who we are in any Christian congregation. To be able to talk about what it means to be a Christian family and to continue with this theme of how then through the family to influence the world. But let me just say this, that the failure to disciple is costly. Think back with me to the time of Moses and Joshua. Joshua had been trained by Moses for decades. Moses was preparing him to lead the people of Israel once they crossed into that promised land. And Joshua did just that. But at the end of his life, something happened. Joshua didn't think about the next generation. He did not raise up anybody to follow him. And when they reached the promised land and Joshua died, the people of Israel splintered into all their tribal groups and they lost their unity as a nation. When Christians fail to disciple the next generation, it's very costly. Did you know that the first 113 colleges and universities founded in the United States were founded by Christians as Christian institutions? Go back and read the charters of Harvard and Dartmouth and Yale. They were all founded and dedicated to Jesus Christ to educate young people in a godly way. And somewhere along the way, somebody forgot to disciple. Jesus got lost in these institutions of learning. Now, the majority of those universities are actually antagonistic to the Christian faith. It's true in so many organizations that started out with a Christ-honoring focus, but somehow lost Jesus along the way. I had shoulder surgery once at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Nothing Presbyterian about the hospital except the name. I didn't get a clergy discount or anything. It's true of relief organizations and recreational programs, the YMCA, right? The Young Men's Christian Association uh, was founded to lead people to Christ through sports. Now its name has been neutered to now it's just the Y. No Christ in the mission statement at all. Even denominations. And it can be true in families. The failure to disciple is costly. So are you really a Christ follower? Are you a disciple? If so, who are you discipling? If so, who are you discipling? Jesus is imparting his life to you, and he desires to see that life multiply through others that you influence. Who are you discipling? And if you're feeling stuck in your relationship with Christ, if you're feeling like you're not making any progress or you're kind of going in circles, let me encourage you with this illustration. Someone once said that following Christ is a lot like a river river kayaking. A beginner in whitewater kayaking will focus on trying to avoid the rocks. They attempt to go around those big rocks they see in the water and not really knowing how, how they often 
end up in the water swimming or on the shore wet and scared. An experienced kayaker will ignore the rocks and instead will follow the flow of the water. That flow line will lead them around the obstacles. And they can usually look far enough ahead that it gives them a clue of where they're supposed to be going. By following the flow, by focusing on the water as it moves in an endless stream around the rocks, experienced kayakers can successfully navigate the dangerous waters. Oftentimes, as we are following God, we focus on our problems. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I don't have enough prayer time. We focus on all these problems in our lives. But what we need to begin to focus on is simply Jesus as our river guide. Whatever problems are distracting you in your relationship with the Lord, whatever issues are looming in your life like the big rocks in a river, whatever situations are swirling like the boiling waters of the rapids, look ahead and see Jesus. Jesus is the guide. He's following the flow line. In a sense, he really is the flow line. And so when we see him, he becomes the one who moves us forward. You can be alert to the rocks around you in, in your personal rivers, but remember to navigate by them by focusing on what Jesus is calling you to do, where he wants you to go in life. The more that you can do that throughout the day, the better your life will flow. Are you a Christian? A better question is, are you a Christ follower? Jesus is in the lead, and we can follow him. We can become his disciples. And remember, there are others behind you, following you, who need you to be their guide. Have a great week. Thank you.